everyone, and welcome back to LambdaCast. My name is David Kuntz, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Logan Barnett. Hello. And Aaron Johnson. Hi, everyone. Just a little bit about ourselves. Uh, my experience has been mostly uh, with, with functional programming, has been uh, using sort of compiled to JavaScript type languages like PureScript and Elm, and a little bit with Haskell, although I don't get to work with uh, functional language sort of as my main day job. What about you two? And my main day job, I work with JavaScript. I employ a functional style. Uh, I like to use Ramda a lot. Work sometimes necessitates using Lodash. Um, I both have used and I'm trying to get my organization to adopt Flow. So introducing typing to JavaScript and the typing is more of like a functionally inspired typing, not so much an OO inspired typing. And my role here is uh, primarily as, as a learner. I don't know all that much about uh, functional programming, or at least I didn't when we started the podcast. Uh, my work is in uh, C-sharp, not really uh, much, fun much functional going on there. And I do have a small amount of experience on a hobby project, just doing a, using, a, using a functional library. But primarily, I uh, don't know too much. And I can ask questions to try and help, uh, help myself and hopefully you guys to learn. But you are not limited to just the questions that Aaron asks, as we have an email address that you can send uh, whatever you want to, contact at lambdacast.com. We love to hear from you, what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong, things you want to hear, anything of that nature. If you want something more immediate, you can go to fpchat.com and join that. That's a Slack community that you can join. And there is a LambdaCast channel now on the fpchat Slack where we can be found. So you can direct message us there as well. Um, that's especially good if there's questions about a certain episode that you want to discuss. That's a pretty good place to kind of contain that discussion too. We also now have a Twitter account at LambdaCast. So that's another good way to reach out to us directly. And finally, we now have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash LambdaCast. So if you're looking for a way to support the show, that's uh, one way that you can do that. Our first goal is to cover our monthly hosting costs. So if you head over there, you'll see the different reward tiers that we've set up. All right. So this episode, we are going to dive into sort of the scarier end of the FP swimming pool, um, an area that I think is correctly contentious in a lot of people's minds. Um, this is the, the sort of the category theory bits that you hear a lot coming out of, say, the Haskell community. Uh, much less out of other communities, but Haskell is kind of the one where you, you tend to hear a lot of this. And we just want to talk about a few of these concepts, because I think even if you're not in a language that is uh, first statically typed and then second of, of a particular sort of friendliness to the expression of these concepts, um, and there's actually only a few languages that can express um, certain concepts that, that we will eventually talk about in the actual type signature, of course, the concept itself exists in pretty much every programming language, uh, certainly everything with lambdas. Um, but in terms of like seeing the type signature, that's generally reserved for like your Haskells, your Scala's, your PureScripts, um, Idris, you know, things of that nature. You know, things that would be usually labeled as advanced or scary kind of FP. Uh, but we want to talk about some of these concepts because they're actually not that bad or at least uh, well, I say they're not that bad. I think Aaron should be the judge by the end of the episode, having, uh, we intentionally did not talk about this ahead of time. So he has no foreknowledge of these things we're gonna talk, we're, we're gonna be talking about. And so if, you know, you can tell me. And just to be clear, when we say not that bad, do we mean not that hard to understand? Or do we mean not that useful? Or do we, what's our, what's our, what's our bar gonna be at the end of the episode when we measure in? Not that much trauma, hopefully. <laughs> Am I, am I still awake? Not that hard to understand is definitely what I'm going for. Ease of understanding. Ease of understanding. And then, but more than that. So it's ease of understanding what it is conceptually and then ease of understanding how it might be relevant to something that you're doing. Uh, I see. Because it's one thing to say, I know what blub is. And it's a completely different thing to say, oh, I see how blub could be applied in this situation and it would be better than other thing. Sure, sure. That, that, that does make sense. I follow you. And... Um, as we go through these, because I think probably we'll go um, in the next few episodes through a few of these concepts. There's there's not a, a whole lot to cover that, that they're sort of the main core ones. It's kind of like we talked about map, filter, and reduce, and that forms like the core of like higher order functions, and you can do a lot with them. Like when dealing with collections, that really covers a huge amount of ground. There's sort of a collection of those 
of these category theory structures that covers a lot of the sort of patterns that you might run into in programming. And once we cover them, that's kind of all there is to cover in, the, in that realm. And I would actually say, uh, even talking about map filter and reduce, those aren't particularly simple, easy to understand concepts. It's just that a lot of us use them in our, in our daily work. And so we've become familiar with them. Um, and so it was, it was fine for me to talk about them. I've used them before, but some people that are listening that may not have used them. I don't think you need to feel bad if that, if that was a difficult concept to grasp. Oh, certainly. I wasn't, um, I wasn't necessarily saying that those were easy. Oh, no. I just wanted to point out that those, those were somewhat difficult. Right. So we'll see how things go from there. I guess my point here is there's a small set of things that you got a tremendous amount of mileage out of. And it's sort of the similar thing. Like those three are not the only higher order functions that exist. And the sort of category theory structures we're going to talk about won't be the only ones that exist, but they'll be like the core ones that get used a lot. Mm -hmm. and, and there's many, many more that get used much less frequently. Sure. But we're going to try and cover basically that we, we've, we've covered the, the big three, so to speak, but there's still quite a few more that maybe aren't as used, used as often as those, but are still used very frequently. Yes. And I'm sure we'll come back to those at some point. So okay. without further ado, let's, let's dive into monoids, which is our topic for this episode. The bad guys from Space Invaders? Yes, I'm pretty sure that's what they were called. Is that actually okay. true? I don't know. Okay. <laughs> but that's what it sounds like. It's very possible. So yeah, if that makes it sound less scary, just think of the bad guys from, or gals, bad, the alien invaders from Space Invaders. When, when Dave told us this talk was coming, I cheated a little bit and looked at the docs. Um, but one of the things I noticed was even the docs seem to admit that it's very common to mix up monoids with monads. Is, is, do you have a mnemonic to distinguish those two by chance? I don't. They are different, although the name being related is not a complete accident, I don't think. There is a relation, it's just not a very obvious one. Well, we may, uh, it sounds like that's a perfect thing, like if they're really similar and monads is a whole, is a whole discussion here, then when we get to monads, we'll get to them later. Uh, we will definitely get to monads later, yes, much later. <laughs> but I, I don't have a particularly good um, way of distinguishing them. I think similar to any two words that sound similar, like once that, that are both unfamiliar, once you kind of grab hold of one of them, it will be very easy to distinguish from the other. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. So what's a monoid? So this comes from category theory. R real quick, let's talk about category theory just a little bit. So category theory is, is math mathematics and it's abstract mathematics. So it's the mathematics that describes other mathematics. It's like the mathematics that describes why arithmetic works. If, if you've ever wondered, like, yes, there are mathematicians who study why arithmetic is arithmetic, why it has those rules, why it does those things. And category theory is sort of um, the structure that category theory studies is um, the result of that study. <laughs> and so many of the things that we're going to talk about and, and monoids today um, we'll talk about, you can see parallels to things in mathematics um, that you may be familiar with, because a lot of these structures were extracted from things that we understood fairly well like arithmetic, and then were sort of uh, once once uh, made abstract and generalized, it was fairly obvious that, oh, that also applies to this other thing and this other thing and this other thing. And a whole sort of what would appear to be a disjoint set of concepts can all be unified, at least in some aspect, under a certain categorical abstraction. Does that kind of make sense? Kind of makes sense. Maybe, maybe after this, this will make more sense. Okay, category theory starts off with an incredibly vague premise that like everything is a category, right? Um, everything is an object in a category. Got it. And then there's like there's connections between categories that describe transformations that they might have or something. Yes, and that's the morphisms that we talked about a couple episodes ago. Right. But is it is, so? Is it fair as a as a kind of uh, as a newbie summary here to say category theory? Uh, arose as um, arose after the abstract mathematics that was describing how math works, and then uh, we're going to kind of go through some of the topics that came up in, in math category theory transferred well to programming, and so they they did what they could to adapt them into into FP, and here we are. Yeah, so uh, FP, or you know, people who are into math slash FP noticed that there was this interesting structure that described what they were doing in their normal everyday programming life, and said, hey. That's that's this this thing over mm -hmm. here. They have a name for it and they've studied it. That's really interesting. Let's see if we can take that and and use it. Mm -hmm. In the same way that arrays have come up and any any number of functions for programming have come up, even even strings weren't all weren't always around. They were just right. character arrays. But yes, yep. okay, okay. So before we can get to monoids, 
we actually monoids is usually what people talk about. Um, there's a lot of categorical structures out there, and I want to separate out. Um, I'm going to back up one step before monoid to something called a semigroup. Okay, so again, these names. I apologize for these names. We can't do anything about them. The mathematicians got here a long time ago. They named them, so we just have to go with the names that they have. <laughs> we can make up new names, but if we want to sort of uh, share knowledge and be able to talk to people, it's kind of worth getting over the weirdness of the name. Semigroup sounds like a part of a group. Sounds great. Uh, and and actually, and and that implies that there is a group, and that is absolutely correct. That semigroup is less powerful than a group. Great. Um, we were not going to talk about group. We're going to talk about semigroup. A semigroup is a is a data type that has an operation that allows you to take two elements of that type and mush them together and get another element of that type. Okay. So you have an you have an A and an A or a T and a T. You have this append thing that you can do or combine mm -hmm. or whatever you want to call it. So you have a T and a T. You mush them together and you get a T. You have an A and an A. You mush them together. You get an A. Hopefully, okay. no one is running for the hills at this point. Yeah, that sounds like adding. So what, what part here is the semigroup? Is it the mushing? The append operation defined for a certain data type is what says that that data type is a semigroup because there is this operation that's available for that type. Okay. Does that make sense? And does it work? Yeah. I mean, so that works obviously for numbers. You can add them together. For strings, you can concatenate them. Does that, does that still work for strings? So, so like strings we can say... concatenate, yep. Lists okay. we can concatenate. Okay. Like those are things we can do. So anything that you would talk about concatenating is almost assuredly a semigroup. Okay. Now, with numbers, there is the interesting point that we can bring up that there is actually two ways of smushing numbers together. Well, there's multiple ways. There's two ways that we care about today. Okay. There is addition, but there's also multiplication. And those are two different rules. Like the smush operator here, the append, the concatenation, could be either plus or, or times. Um, it was brought up um, that... I think Logan had had noticed this earlier that there's also subtraction and division, which are kind of special cases of addition and multiplication, right? Mm -hmm. We uh, we talked about that a little bit ahead of time, so I, I we're, we're cheating here, but but yes, you're you're on the right track there. Basically, yeah, subtraction is just a, just because there's a variation of addition with a negative number attached, and a division is with the reciprocal of the of the divisor. Right, so. and so that that's nice. That simplifies a lot of things. Um, because there is a rule that a semigroup has to obey. There's actually two rules, and these rules are called laws. These are mathematical laws, and in programming, we um, we would want to respect those. So if you ever go look at Haskell documentation for semigroup uh, or monoid, it will talk about the, the laws for this thing, and it will say it must have this operation, this function. They call it smush. A, append right. is usually what it goes by. Um, okay. In Haskell, for historical reasons, it was called M append, and people pronounce it mupend. Um, it's monoid append, and and that's because they had name collisions with other things, so it, it's called append um, or mupend there. But we can just speak broadly that it's just append, uh, and and you'll see it have it'll have its little type signature of you know an A and an A combined to to give you back an A. That's all semigroup has to have. But then it has these two laws. And there's no way to generally prove these laws, like to enforce these laws in most type systems. Um, certainly Haskell can't do this. And, you know, Elm or PureScript or F-sharp or Scala can't do this. But the rules are that the, um, the grouping of these uh, elements must be associative. So associativity is one of these, like, math properties, again, that comes up that you may not be um, super familiar with. It comes up a lot, a fair amount in, in these kinds of discussions, uh, but I know it, it doesn't come up a lot in general programming. All it means is that if you have an A, a B, and a C, let's say, um, sorry, we have an A, an A, and A. So we'll call it one, two, and three. A1, A2, A3. We can smush that in two different ways. We can either smush A1, A2 together, and then that composite result, we can smush A3 into it, right? Because they, you can you can keep appending as many times as you want, right? Sure. Or we could smush a two, a three together, and then smush a one into that. We can either smush the first two, then the third, or the last two, and then the first. There's two different ways of getting down to one single value at the end. Um, and would it just be fair to say that really what what we're saying is order doesn't matter. It, for it to be a semigroup, order cannot matter. Those have yeah. to be the same thing. Those have to result in the same value. That's kind of if I if I remember math right, I think that's what associative means. That's, that's what associative means. Yes, exactly. I thought that's what commutative means. Commutative means you can swap the order. Four plus five is the same thing as five plus four. I see. 
So uh, semigroups don't have to be commutative, although they often are. <laughs> well, actually, that's not true. Take two strings. Let's take three strings. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I. Now, let's, let's uh, concatenate A, B, C, and D, E, F. So we do that. And now we'll take that whole string, A, B, C, D, E, F, and concatenate G, H, I. Okay, so now we have a string A through A through I. And then we'll, we'll concatenate the other way. We'll do um, D, E, F, G, H, I first. So now we have A, B, C, and D through I as two separate strings. We concatenate it. We, again, get A through I. Mm, so, so position not changing, but order of application. Yes, exactly. Order changing. of application, not position. Got it. And yeah, I think you're right, Logan. The order doesn't order, order matter is commutative. You were right on there. I was wrong about the term. Because the order does matter here in the sense that like, you can't switch the order of A1, A2, and A3. You get a different result. Yeah, if we did DEF instead of ABC first, we'd have a whole right. different string. But the order that the operations happen in don't matter. Yes, and that's a very important property. Okay. So, th so that's associativity. The other, um, the other law that it respects is that if you append, um, you you can append, you can compose it with like an identity function. So you you can smush. Um, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. That is the end of the laws for summary group. Okay. It is associative, and it has this append function. We're done. That's all, that's all there is for summary group. So hopefully that that's not too complicated. We um we came up with some examples. We have numbers, a couple different variations of numbers, addition, multiplication. We've got strings, we've got lists. There's all kinds of other things. We could audio clips, we could concatenate those. Anything concatenatable, right? Those are all great okay. candidates for semigroup. So we talked about laws. And laws are really awesome because they're not just some arbitrary rules someone made up. It's like we've discovered this is the properties that this thing has, right? Yes. Um, does does my language enforce these laws? No, that's what I was saying. There's um, in pretty much any language that you're going to use um, in the near term. There's no way to enforce these laws in the language. Got it. And didn't we say that the um, provers happen to handle that? Uh, yeah. So if you want to go into a theorem prover like an Agda or something like that, uh, then you can start to um, prove some of these these things. Or if you're looking at like a refinement type system, like in Liquid Haskell. Um, then you can start to get some of these benefits where you can prove aspects of your sort of your concept. Got it. I don't think those are going to trickle down into mainstream languages for a few years, but I do think that that is on the radar for maybe 10 years from now. I think those mm -hmm. will start to become a little more mainstream. Okay, so we have semigroup. We can strengthen semigroup slightly. Well, actually, sorry, before we get there, my bad. Let's talk about ways in which semigroup might be useful. So if you have a a semigroup, let's say you have a, a list of some type T, which is known to be a semigroup. So T is a semigroup, um, but you don't really know what T is. You just know it's a semigroup. So there's this append operation that works on it. What can we do with the list of those things? A list of A or a list of T or wh whatever our, our thing is? Well, it seems like that we could take each item and then also pass how to append them. Like pass a list of the item and pass how to append them and know that we're going to append them all. If we wanted to run a, a series of functions across each item and a list of them. So by, by being a semigroup, we know how to append them to each other. That's what being a semigroup means. Okay, we don't have to pass a function for how to append them. Right, so um, let's pretend let's pretend we're in C-sharp. <laughs> just to ground this in something. Sure. Um, there's a semigroup, there's an I semigroup that has mm -hmm. one function on it, append. Oh, okay. And so the, the append function. Okay, that's what we were saying before. It's called append. Yeah. Okay. So we have some type T that's constrained to be of the type I uh, semigroup. So you don't okay. know what the type T is, but you know it's a semigroup. Mm -hmm. That's all you know about it. And we have like a list of those. What can we yeah, do? Then you can you can append them. We can append you them can... to each other. Okay. So what kind of operations can we do with that? Just append. Yeah, with the ability to append, I think you can append. If you don't know anything else, then you can work with one, well, you can work with two or more items and append them to return a single item. Okay, so we could, um, if we have a list of those, of, element, type. of those items, we could reduce them all down into a single element. Is that fair? Yeah, of, of that same type. I guess that's important too. Like you're, you, know your, you know your type is saying the same. Right, they're all A's, and at the end, we're going to end up with a single A. Yes. Okay, so you could uh, combine them all together. Uh, do you have to combine them in order? Do you have to say, um, the first one and the second one combine, and then the third one combine with that, and then the fourth one combine with that. Um, no, but we talked about before, you, need, you do need to do, if you're going to combine items one through five, then you do need to, um, like, the you can't switch the order and say, oh, I'm going to do three plus one, and then sure. two, 
So we, you, you can't do that, but it doesn't matter what order you do the rest of it in, no. Okay, so if we had a big list, uh, let's say a million items, mm -hmm. could we, knowing that these, this is an associative thing, is there a way that we could divide and conquer this giant list of a million yeah. things mean, that need to be aggregated? If you had threads, you could divide up the elements and buy X number of threads and then combine those and have some joining thread combine all of the results of that or something. So we could split the list into N sublists, have each of those sublists combine their respective parts, keeping them in order, of course, the, the subparts, mm -hmm, right. and then combine all the subparts at the end together. Sure. Like as a very, very simple example, we could split the list into, if it's a million, 250 parts of 250,000, and part one is zero to 250 or 249.9 and so on and so forth. And at the end, just add those four things together. And we know that's safe to do because our type is associative. It's, it's append operation is associative. So we can now paralyze this thing. We know nothing about it, but we're already talking about paralyzing it across multiple threads. And that's safe to do. So that's something that we can do. That's kind of interesting. And this works for anything that is a semi-group. So if, if you can, like, when I'm talking about, like, um, sort of, like, you get stuff for free. I think we've mentioned this, like, in the past, how you can, like, get things for free uh, in terms of reasoning. This is one of those things. Like, if, if I say to you, hey, Logan, blah, 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 semi-group, blah, 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 you now know that you can safely... Uh, and, and I say, I want to, you know, I need to reduce all those down. You now know that you can, whatever the rest of that blah was, you don't care because you can do that safely across. We can now throw it to a GPU shader and. Sure. Exactly. Whatever. Utilize or all you those could thousands do it, of coprocessors. You, you yeah. could do it se sequentially, right? You could do it just one at a time. That's also totally fine. But you know, it's at least safe to do this right. because it has this property. So associativity seems like this tiny little innocuous thing and is actually very, very useful and very powerful. And this is the stuff that was very not obvious to me at first when I was learning about this stuff. It was like, oh, okay, associativity, that's, that's a thing. That's, I guess that's cool. Probably, maybe, I guess, I don't care. It, that's where I am right now. But when it was pointed out to me that, oh, this allows you to like basically paralyze and use any sort of divide and conquer type strategy on this thing that you want to, that starts to get really cool all of a sudden, right? Um, another thing that we could do with a, a semi-group, we, again, we don't know what it is, but could we, could we receive these semi-group elements uh, sort of asynchronously and sort of collect them. Is that a safe thing to do? Sure. Could, could we have like an infinite stream of you them could, just you coming could in? You even process them as you were getting Again, them. as long as you know their position. As long as they stay in the same order. Right. Yep. Yeah. So they could come in, we could buffer them, we could even batch them together as they've come in and then allow that to come through. So they could come through one at a time and we could append and, and add to our, our, our total. Or mm -hmm. we could sort of do have a little window that like collects 10 of them, yeah. appends all of them together, and then sends it through. It does a, a stream of chunks, essentially. A stream of chunks, exactly. Yeah, yeah that would be a totally safe thing to do. So again, we, we now know all these different operations we can do on a thing just because it has append and it's associative. This is the only, this feels like a lot of reasoning we're doing with a very tiny little bit of information. This, this is the power that I feel when I sort of put on the category theory hat. And this is just this is just because we have this one function that we have to obey. This one function and the law of associativity. Okay. If we didn't have associativity, the, the law has to come to it. I can't we can't just slap an append on anything and call it the semicolon. Absolutely. Because if it's not associative, then we, we none of these um none of these things hold, right? What would be an about? example of something that we slapped append on that wasn't the semigroup? So something that's appendable but is not associative. Is, doesn't subtraction work here? Append is a little weird to use as a word for subtraction. Uh, yeah, I think that actually that's a fair that's a fair example. So that's, of that. a nice, that's a nice simple example. Yeah. So you could you could define append to be subtraction, and okay. sure you can if you take two ints and you subtract them in any pairing, you'll still get an int. So it's still like a and a to a, like, like that that signature still holds, but it's no longer has the same meaning if you vary the groupings of the parentheses. Wonder uh, maybe if you had an append tag kind of thing. Like if we're talking strings, um, it surrounds it in some sort of DOM-like tag or XML tag. Like you couldn't, you 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 couldn't you couldn't do that out of order, even if you right. res reserved uh, preserved your position, right? Gotcha. Like you would have to go from left to right effectively to to do it correctly, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I agree that you could you could come up with scenarios like that. I think that's correct. Um, so clearly, we are restricted in what we can do that um, obeys associativity and has an append function. But there's a surprising number of things that can fit this shape, and, and a surprising number of uses. It really reminds me of when we discussed type signature. Um, the same, in the same way that okay, well, we know this method's type signature. What can it do? And you can find like, oh, there's just a couple things it can do, but that doesn't mean it's not useful to know that. If you know, oh, okay, this is taking a list of A's and it's and a function is returning a, a single A or something. Yeah, we kind of talked through what, what could that possibly be doing in an early episode, and that feels very similar to to this discussion, where we're kind of just saying, okay, well, we we just know a little bit of information, but we still we know some of the possibilities of things it can do, and in this case. It's more like here's some very useful things you can do with this tidbit of information. And that you, to me, that the significant thing is, and that you know are safe. Like if you take some random C-sharp data structure and you go, can I combine all these across multiple threads? Is that safe? I think I would be like, I don't, uh, I'll get back to you, right? <laughs> but if I- It's not something that really enters even your, your thought process often. Yeah. So, and and yeah. maybe we don't need to do this on different threads. Maybe we just say, could we use a divide and conquer strategy here? Could we you know, chop this up recursively or something and, and mm -hmm. some of these? Is that even a safe thing to right. do? But if we say can, it's, can my cron job wake up every now and then and churn through some of these and then put it down so it's not eating all my processor time? Could yeah. be a number of things, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if we just say, hey, it's a semi group, then we're like, done. Yep. I know all these things that it can do, like instantly. It just comes for free, all this knowledge, which is, uh, or I should say, all this like reasoning, if, if that is a better way of uh, phrasing that. Yeah. Um, cool. So that's semi group. That's pretty good. So one more time, I'd like to, I'd like to just because I feel like I, I lost it for a second here. A semigroup is not like the data type necessarily. It's the operation. It's an operation on a data type. So if a data type has this operation available to it, you could say that it is a semigroup. Okay. Um, but is an integer a semigroup then? There's two semigroups for integer under addition and multiplication. Okay. So it's, it's the data type plus the operation itself. Yeah. It sounds like you wouldn't say an int is a semigroup. You'd, You'd say, say an int under addition is a semigroup. Okay. And an int integers under multiplication are a different semigroup. Are also semigroups, yeah. And there may be other ones too. Yeah. But gotcha. I, I'm sure mathematicians could come up with other fun semigroups in there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I bet so. And this is an example. So when I talk, when we talk about category theory, here's an example of category theorists are studying addition and subtraction and multiplication division. They're studying sort of basic arithmetic. And they say, oh, there's this interesting structure that addition and multiplication are related in this way. And then they sort of extract that and that becomes semigroup. And then other people are able to say, hey, that actually is all like these other things over here in programming. Like this isn't just about arithmetic. This is much broader than that. These concepts all started in something, you know, uh, rooted in some sort of concrete example, and then we're extracted out and we're seen as much more general, and then we're applied to a much more general case. So they're going to feel very general, but they all came from a like a real concrete thing at, at the beginning. Okay, so um, now we can get to monoid. So a monoid is a semigroup with one thing added. Okay, it has this value. It's not even a function. <laughs> it's a value called identity that is the empty value for that data type. We've talked about identity a few times. Okay. So this isn't, um, when we say the identity, it's not the identity function, but it's like the identity function. Well, this is the identity value, right? This is the identity value, meaning if you append the identity value to something, it doesn't change. Right, so this is okay. empty string for concatenate. Yes. This is zero for addition zero for add. and one for multiplication empty list for uh, list concatenation, and yeah. so on. There could be some sort of null nullary event that comes through that's sort of like no op event. That could be kind of a thing that just doesn't get appended. Yeah. So you said a monoid is a semigroup group with just this additional information about yes. what the identity property is for the operation you're performing. Correct. So it's it's it has an empty element and an append operation. And so it has another law that goes with it. So it retains the existing associativity law, of course, from semigroup, and it adds one extra law, which says that appending the identity element with an element of that type results in just the same value. Okay. It doesn't matter if you append the identity first or last, like the order doesn't matter. So it, it is commutative in that sense. So identity append A is the same thing as A append identity, which is the same thing as A. They're all the same. Got it. Identity does not change the value in any way. 
and that's a monoid. When people talk about monoids, this is all they're talking about. These two things, that is it. Oh, hang on a second. Didn't we say commutative means that we can apply the operation out of order and it still works? The only thing that's commutative here is that the fact that identity can be appended to the element on either side of the append. Okay, so it's just commutative with, with identity itself yes. and not with any Correct. other arbitrary yes. value. Correct. Okay. Correct. Not two A's together. Got it. Not that kind of thing. Okay. So that's that, I feel like I follow you. Um, but can we talk through how you might actually, like, why do you need to know the identity? What's happening here? Why do you care about that part? Okay, so there's a few things that we can do with monoids that we can't do with semigroups. So let's take our list of A, where A is a semigroup. We, we said that we can take all those elements and we can smush them all down into a single element, right? Mm -hmm. And we can do that divide and conquer or one at a time or whatever. But there's a specific list in which this will fail. Is it a list of one? Nope. List of one is is okay. We oh. return that one element. An empty list? I'm thinking, I'm, an empty I'm thinking. list. How, how do you return an A from an empty list of A? I see. Okay. I was trying to, I, I just knew it had to be one or zero. Mm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Those I, are your good cases. I, right? I was using yeah. my Jeopardy buzzer there a little quickly. I would imagine this ties in well with fold, since fold requires you to have an initial value. Yes. So with fold, you could fold over a monoid, or sorry, a semigroup, uh, given that initial value, and then just calling append as your fold function, right? And mm -hmm. that would fold them all down. Totally no problem. Right. Can you fold without the initial value over a semigroup? No. Like a list of semigroups, or, you know, a foldable of semigroup. And it's like, well, maybe if there's more than zero elements, yes, we can do it. If there's zero elements, then we're in trouble. Right. So we don't have any way of getting a value of that type. So you can do fold operations that do not require that work on an empty list or a list of any elements. And and when I say list here, I mean any structural container thing. <laughs> it does not have to be a list. Yeah. Right. You can fold over a maybe or you can fold over, you know, like whatever. Any any uh any functor, right? Uh well, so functors are mappable. They may also be foldable, but foldable mm. is its own thing. Okay. Um it's its own kind of like interface kind of thing. Got it. Uh, but yes, you can think of it that way. M many things that are functors are also foldable. That those just tend like because they tend to be um, containerish. If that makes sense. So are map and fold related to functor and monoids? Like, is there a, a ratio like relationship? Uh, well, we haven't we haven't really talked about functor. We'll get to that very soon. Oh, I thought we did. Have we talked about functor? I thought we had an episode. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, we have not. Aaron, Aaron didn't listen to that one. That's what I'm going to hide behind. <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. Um, well, it's still interesting. It's it's nice because some of the advanced listeners can get a little something out of that anyway. So there's not a direct relation the way you're saying. Okay. Um, but I know what you, I know what you're talking about. Um, so let, let's just stick with fold here because we've we've okay. definitely talked about that. Yeah. So with fold, if there is a, if we have a monoid, a full monoid, then we know that we can reduce that down, no problem. We can fold it, and we don't care if it's empty or not. How how do we accomplish that? Um, real quick, I just want to make sure uh, fold is like aggregate, right? Or an operation like that. I mean, and not not necessarily just aggregate, but an operation fold like that. Fold reduce aggregate. Yeah. Yep. All yeah. the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, so if uh, you have, we go ahead. We can we can accomplish this because we can assume the initial value is the identity. And so we can just slap the identity value in there and start appending against it because it doesn't change the meaning to append with the identity, right? That's why that law is there. You can say the initial value in my collection is identity and then whatever else is in the list, which may be empty, which might have a million things. Who cares? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, if you wanted to, you could also say it's the list plus this at the end. Uh, the, the identity could be at the end if you want to fold from the right, if you want to do like a right fold, where you kind of start from the end of the list. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, more like it doesn't really matter if you have, it doesn't matter what direction, right? Like you could, your, your identity value can yeah. be placed at the end of the beginning because it doesn't. So it, would have, it would have to work with both fold and fold R. And so um, this allows us to take any kind of uh, collection-y thing that is monoidal instead of just a semi-group. It's a monoid. And it, we can always concatenate them all the way down. And we don't ever have to worry about special cases for not having a value. Like, oh, we, it's empty. Okay, what do we do in that situation? We don't have to worry about that. There's no special cases. And so there's a special fold that uh, works on monoids that doesn't take the initial value. Like there's a, there's a fold function that does that. Okay. Because it doesn't need the initial value because it, it has it. It's called empty, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? It just grabs the empty value. Or mempty, if you're in Haskell, they have the M empty on there. 
So does that make sense? I think that's extra valuable. I, I've this is something I have to work with with um, longtime imperative engineers is having a special case. This is a bad thing. We should hate that, and we we kind of hate it, but we just do it anyways. And really, what we should be doing is trying to find situations where we don't have to special case. We don't have to say, well, I did all this processing on this data, and it still might not be in a state that's valid. By the time it gets to me, so now I got to put all these checks in before I actually consume it. And all right. That. If yeah. you if you get it back and then you have to if check it to check the special condition, you may be in this situation. Is that right. kind of what you're saying? Yeah, and if and if you have to write special cases to make your your, your foldable operation, and now all of a sudden you can't just like yank things in for free. You can't take some general purpose function and then partially apply it till it fits, and then use that. Now you have to go do some custom work that goes and says, well, well, wait, what if this particular part of it isn't where I want it to be? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and now you've now you've lost your ability to reuse all of your pre-existing stuff. And it might seem like that's small, but that adds up quick. I, I think it it doesn't seem small because I think I think most people that program have come across that same thing of like, ah, it is like it is obnoxious to have to code for this one one of weird thing or checking for null all the time is it doesn't totally apply here but it's the same basic idea yeah. of uh it's you, you have to do this one extra step that, that really shouldn't have to be there but you kind of know you have to to make your code complete and have it not crash or not throw an error and an example of where um kind of the special case you might come in is in your append function itself well i mean so your append function takes two a's and returns an a right and so you don't want to have to like think too much about like special casing around that you want to be able to just like throw that at a list and if you know you can always come up with at least the empty element and one thing uh you know that's in the list like Mm -hmm. your append always can work with that like you don't have to worry about like any special casing there you can just throw it at it and and that means you can adapt a lot more functions to be that append than you might have historically thought you wanted that thought were even capable of being used there like, like Logan, you mentioned like massaging a function into fit. Yeah, I don't mean to be too pedantic here, but I it feels like so we have our list, we have our collection, whatever it is, right? Of of stuff, and we have the default value. Um, and the only situation where we're talking about here that's kind of a special case is if well, we actually didn't pass them anything, and so all we ha- so we have that identity value instead, right? That's that's kind of our special case that we're coding around here is oh we actually didn't get anything, well we actually have one item in our we have a we have one substitute item kind of in a list or we always have one because we have that identity value, um, and if you just have the one value you're not calling that append function anyway are you you're, you're not that's a good point you're not actually saying append the empty yeah and the same thing just if you get a one item list you're not going to call I mean well you might call append and append the empty item or you might not depending on. How you, how you I think the thing it. is, though, is that the the fold can take care of that for you, right? Like you don't have to worry about that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, because you have that default because value. Because you, you, you are you are obeying the laws of what it means to be a monoid. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you follow the structure, you get these benefits. Yep, and that's actually all there is to monoids. Like for all the the hoopla, those two little things, and half most of it's actually semigroup. <laughs> Just a little bit more is the is the monoid part. Yeah, it felt like once it, feel, it feels like if you understand a semigroup, then getting to monoid isn't very difficult at all. So again, to kind of like mince these two apart a little bit, what what would be a semigroup that's not a monoid? So uh, something that is appendable that doesn't have a zero value, it doesn't have an empty value. It feels like a semi like any semigroup could become a monoid. Um, you just a monoid like needs a semigroup to to exist. Like um, there's well, no every right. Every monoid is a semigroup. So yeah, every monoid. Well, a part of the monoid is a semigroup, and the other part is the identity value, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a data type called non-empty list. Mm-hmm. It's a non-empty list. We can append two non-empty lists together, right, mm-hmm. and get a new non-empty list. But there's no empty value for a non-empty list, <laughs> so it cannot be a monoid. Okay. By definition, that's a non-empty list. That's kind okay. of the point. A non-empty list is a semigroup, though. Yes. Gotcha. So, I mean, there, there's so more. not every semigroup can be a monoid. Correct. That's why there's a distinction. But I, so you said earlier, a monoid is a semigroup, and I, I don't think that's totally accurate. A monoid no, is a... every monoid is a semigroup. Not every semigroup is a monoid. I would say one, one is the subset of the other. But I would I would say not every monoid is not a semigroup. Every monoid, every monoid uses uses a semigroup. So, but no, but it it also is a like. Anything for which you have implemented... So to be a monoid, mm-hmm. you have to have implemented append and empty. Okay. If you've implemented append, you're therefore a semigroup. 
I see. Okay, so mono is kind of a subclassification of semigroup. Mm. Uh, yeah, sub in the sense of it is more specific mm-hmm. and less general. Yeah. Yeah. yeah some semigroups are monoids, or, or or can be monoids, and some yeah. can't. And all and all monoids are semigroups. Okay. So this is the closest that we get to like subclassing, <laughs> like like a hierarchical relational things mm-hmm. is through these category theory hierarchies. Okay, but as you said, it's uh, it's not that the monoid contains the semigroup. So I was thinking that for in my head, I was thinking the monoid contains the semigroup information, and then the identity. And uh, I mean, if you want to think of it in C sharp terms, think of an interface I semigroup and I monoid, mm-hmm. and I I monoid inherits from I semigroup. Yeah, uh, that's that does make sense. And that's one way I was kind of visualizing it, but yeah. So everything, a monoid can do everything a semi-group can do and obeys all its laws and adds more. Yeah, just a, a couple more little things it does, which is kind of conveniences, but it, as Logan mentioned, like those special cases go away. Yes, you can often get rid of some of those special cases. And so I've heard of people doing like, uh, so you can strengthen these things. You can say, uh, Logan, if you want to, you can say, this is a commutative monoid. If you want to, like you are adding an extra like condition on top of this mm. and you can design something that is commutative. And if you do that, um, great, you're a commutative monoid, but you are now like a subclass of- Like if you of, can make it commutative with any arbitrary value, you don't need an identity necessarily, or maybe the identity could just be anything. Uh, you still have to have a identity. I guess you could make a commutative semi-group if you wanted to just to be commutative there. But let's say you have a commutative monoid. So it, it's yep. all the stuff in monoid, and you figured out how to make it commutative. Um, then that would allow you to do other things. For example, let's say we're receiving uh, logs across a network, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, we have a logging service, and we're, we have stuff just being sent to us. We're aggregating all those logs into a, a big log, right? You know, from mm-hmm. our different uh, like virtual machines. Mm-hmm. And we might want that service to be uh, commutative, so that we can append the elements in any order. Now, that probably means that our yeah. append operation is going to have to be a little bit smarter. It's going to have to say, I know... This is like a remote logging where it looks at the timestamps yes, and is able to sort exactly. them based on that. Yeah. We're going to have to figure out, oh, you're actually way newer than that thing that just came in. You know, you're 15 entries before the thing that we got I just before you. you. I know where to put I you. I know where to put you. I can tape you together and you'll always be correct. Yes. If you were, if for, if you're just putting those log entries directly into a, into like a database row or a database, I don't think of the other names for it, but a row is what it's called in, in SQL Server. Um, then, and it has a date time attribute, then it doesn't, then it's commutative in that sense. Like you're appending, you don't have to actually insert because you can still put that as the most recent row. And so that still works. If that was, if your log was an actual. Well, you're, I mean, you're inserting. I think he's talking about the data yeah. model as you view it and not sure. necessarily as you might yeah. store it. Yeah, well, however you want to implement it, it's fine. Mm-hmm. It, as long as your actual technical implementation fulfills the conceptual obligation of I can get A and then B, or I can get B and then A, and I can put those together, and at the end, I have the same thing. That would give you a commutative monoid. And so you can view logging, which probably you've never thought of as a commutative monoid. <laughs> you could, if you're inserting into a database table, it could be that if you engineer it right, it serves that purpose. Now, it may be that it's not commutative, and therefore you do care about the order it comes in, and you need to buffer them and hold on to them. And you know, we received one, two, three, four, and then seven, so we need to wait for five and six to arrive. And what do we do if they don't arrive? And yeah, I feel like often logging is done in like a text file, and you don't really want to like, like you're not going to be searching through the text file to try and add in five or six. And so, I guess it depends on the requirements of your project, but they're not always going to be commutative the way they were coded initially, anyway. Sure, and, and it may not be desirable to to enforce that. Yeah, but it may be, and if it is, then great. Now, now we can have that discussion in an abstract way. Yeah, we have some terminology to talk about it. Now, if we have if we have our if we have our heads wrapped around monoids, now we can just talk about monoids, and we don't have to, I don't have to care that Dave works in the medical industry and I work in accounting or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right, we and, can just talk about the because properties. if we can if we can lift our our problems into this abstract space, we can talk about it together mm-hmm. without issue. And this goes back to that quote that I had before, which is the purpose of abstraction is not to obscure, but to, uh, what was it, to like raise the discussion into a place where to, we can be absolutely precise. absolutely precise. Right. And so we're talking about just a few aspects of our data type. Of course, our data type contains way more stuff than than is summed up by monoid because it's going to like go in a database or in a log file or i mean like there's all this like real world stuff that's in there but none of that's actually relevant as long as that real world stuff respects the uh sort of laws that we're opting into such as associativity commutativity 
you know, whatever right. we want to throw on this thing. I mean, we could hypothetically take our data type and write unit tests or something for it that say, look, under these circumstances, it needs to always observe associativity property. Yeah, you could definitely have And then if somebody changes it and it breaks that test, then we can start saying, okay, well, do we want to break that test? Are we leaning on that being associative? And maybe we take that out and our type system now complains because, hey, you said you were a monoid and now you don't implement these these properties. Well, except that our type system won't complain, unfortunately. If we lifted out like the identity or something, right? Oh, yeah. If we, if we started saying like, that's, that's no longer a monoid anymore. Yeah, then it wouldn't be yeah. a monoid. Yep. And there are many type systems for which that would complain, that, that we could get like a compile time error for that. Okay, we're, we've talked about quite a lot of things here. I just want to bring up a couple other examples to kind of further um, sort of expand the sort of breadth of how we perceive of monoids. It's very easy to, to start with a very grounded example like numbers or um, you know collections of things that we can combine, but, but they can, uh, they kind of inhabit some more interesting spaces. So one example of a monoid that you might, that's sort of non-intuitive is any function that's like an A to A function. So a function that takes a parameter and returns the same, or t takes a parameter, of course, uh, returns the same type that it, that it takes as an argument. So mm -hmm. like an A to A, that is a monoid because we can compose those together. Um, I'm not totally following, but okay. So it's a semigroup because if, if you have a function from int to int and another function from int to int, can you glue those two together? Can you compose those? Yes. Yeah, I would think so. And is there an, so it's a semigroup. Great. We got composition. Um, is there a identity value? Is it a monoid? No. Yeah. I'm going to go with no also. What about the identity function? Like ID. It takes a and returns a. Does the ID know? I mean, uh, and what's the identity function? For, you need you need context for an int, right? Well, no, in addition, zero is the identity value, and multiplication one is. Sure, because those things have no effect under composition; they don't change the meaning. So, if I compose identity with, let, let's say I have a function um, max, right? Takes, um, let's say uh, plus one. You know, it just it just increments a number, right? So it takes mm -hmm. an int, returns an int. If I compose that with identity, what happens? I pass in five to increment, I get back six, I pass six into identity, I get back six. I see, the identity function, so yeah. And let's so put it on not... the front now. So I mm -hmm. pass five into the identity function, I get back five, I then pass it into increment, and I get six. But right. where's this identity function coming from? Uh, well, we could define it, it's pretty trivial. It's f of x equals x. Like whatever you take in, you just hand it right but back. It doesn't just exist. It's, it's, you're saying that not that's... an identity value, an identity function. So the identity value is just, it always just gives back whatever it is that you handed it. But in the in the monoid of functions that go from A to A, the identity function is the identity value, right? The, the empty of monoid for functions is the identity function. It's the thing that you can compose on either the left or the right side that does not change the thing you're composing with. Does that make sense? Yeah. This is like, this is why I said this is not obvious at all, right? That the identity function is a value in this monoid. It seems kind of weird. Um, but there it is. So functions. Are we saying that the monoid is kind of the, the I'm trying to, trying to still put it together because no, I'm not following all the way. Are we saying the monoid is kind of um, on the one side is our function, the identity value. And so that's kind of our identity is a function. And on the right side is also a function as opposed to the right side being a value. Uh, right. In the case of the monoid that is functions that go from A to A. Are we stepping up a level here and we're not really talking about ints, we're talking about functions? Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what we're talking about. Okay. Okay. Because then so, that makes more sense. Because I mean, in one case we had our monoid was a list, right? And we could have an empty list, and we can combine lists, and then we had a different monoid that was a string. So we're saying because functions are composable, and because there's an identity function that makes functions monoids. Exactly. Well, a certain kind of function. Functions okay. that have the shape A to A. A to A. Because yeah. an A to B function is not a monoid anymore. It's not a semigroup either, because we can't take two of those arbitrarily and combine them. Monoids have that property of they are the well, same, right? say that that works with ints, but I mean, so we have A to A, but if A was not a composable type... Um, it doesn't matter what A it is. It doesn't matter what care. A it is. Yeah. This will work for literally any A. So if you have a function that goes mm -hmm. from A to A. Okay. You gave a value. I'm gonna, here's your value back. Mm -hmm. 
right? Does it doesn't matter what that value is? Can you can you break my operation there? Yeah, it takes a database connection and gives you back a database connection. It gives you a file. You take the file handle, gives you back a file handle. It gives you whatever, right? But it's a function mm-hmm. that takes in one of those things and gives you back another one of those things. Mm-hmm. If you take that type, I, are, are you seeing the semantics of the value? Well, so I thought that one of the properties of a semigroup is that, uh, like we talked earlier, one of the properties is that it needs to be composed. We need to be able to take it and say, okay, I have A. I don't want to add on an A. Sure. And then I can get a new value. You get a new A specifically. And so we don't know how to do that for every type of A. Like even if we have the identity that says, okay, give me an A and I'll return you the, the identity property. Right. And we have but another what, function that just says, well, we're going to do something to A. But the A's in this case are not the monoid. The functions oh. from A to A are We already are know the that we can, compose, um, we can compose functions. So no matter what, I, I, I guess that makes sense. You can just say plus on a function and... Well, it's not plus, it's it, it's composed, right? So you take two functions and you compose them together to make a new function. Mathematically, isn't it dot or something? In Haskell, it's the dot. Um, in other languages, it's like double or triple greater than that's, or less than. I think that's even the notation in Lambda Calculus. Yeah, I mean, in math, it's like the little circle, which oh. is what the... Oh, right, um, yeah, yeah. That's what they were not mimicking period, in but Haskell. The, but the actual dot. The like in the middle little circle, but they yeah. didn't have Unicode, so they just used period. Yeah. Right. But Aaron, so in this case, you're right. We can't take any arbitrary A and glue those together. That is absolutely correct. But we can take a function from A to A and glue it to another function of A to A. That doesn't mean the A's are composable, right? Mm-hmm. It means the functions are composable. So what do you get when you add two functions together, though? Another function. So it's it's think of it. Oh, I see. Yeah, I guess that's true. It's like think of it as a lambda that that all it does is it it runs your A through the first function, takes the mm-hmm. result. Runs it through the second function. There's, That's function yeah, copy. Okay. There's kind of like a basic law, and I think it's lambda calculus where you can you can go from x to x prime with one function, and if you can go from prime to x double prime, then you can make a function that's x to x double prime. Yeah, it's kind of like you have an a to b function and you have a b to c function. You compose them and you get an a to c function. Right, um, you can you can go directly there. Yeah, yeah. I'm just because it's to... just a function that just calls one and then hands that immediately to the next one, and then yeah, it's just that kind back. of chaining them along. Yeah, I'm mentally walking through. I think one of the properties would have had to be uh, you had to be able to do it um, starting anywhere in the list, right? It had to be commutative. Um, it, we have associativity. Well, I think Dave's starting as Dave is stepping away from lists here. Um, right, but if we have, I'm sorry, the list is not the right word then. So we have a group of functions, and we have multiple functions, and I believe the semigroup, you need to be able to say like, okay, I'm going to do this part and this part separately. Ideally, you, you can do, do a piece and do, do a separate piece and still have the same oh, value. So the associativity bit? So we can kind of combine like the second and the third and then the first with that grouping and then that with the fourth? Yeah, and I'm not, I'm don't, you know, I'm not, it's not really clicking for me in my head whether or not that would happen with every function that you would combine. It, it does work. Because okay. at the end, you, you're not um, you're not changing the order in which they will be the value will be threaded through them. Mm-hmm. You're just combining them into a new bigger function like a lambda that, that calls the first and then passes the result into the second. You're mm-hmm. you're combining those, so it doesn't so really I guess matter. The values don't get really run through until you actually call this new yes, super function. the composed function. Yes, yeah. exactly. Okay. You're and just building point, up a pipeline. It's just going. It's just going sequentially anyway. Yes. Once you run it, it will go through the first one, then the second one, the third one, fourth one. So okay. again, we're not um, unless it's commutative, we can't reorder it. And so we're just talking about semigroups and and sure. monoids okay. here, which are Mentally only associated. now. My image is like we're laying a bunch of pipe, but there's no water flowing through until after we have all the pipe laid down, and that's the data going through the functions. That I think is a very good uh, metaphor. Is say you have pipe, and um, you might have pipe that's one quarter on one end and half inch on the other end. Mm-hmm. And then you have another pipe that's half inch to half inch. Well, we can connect those if we connect the half inch to half inch mm-hmm. to the half inch end of the one quarter to half inch, right? Sure. It wouldn't go on the other end, right? So right. so there's an A to B and then like B to B is kind and of B like B. what that yeah. would look that's like. That's a really right? good metaphor. But in this case, we're saying as long as we have A to A's, we mm-hmm. can just smush those together all day long. Yeah, it doesn't matter if yeah, 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 I follow you completely. And, and then what we're gonna and then yeah, that's a super good metaphor. And then we put a whatever our, our size is for a our quarter inch, we can put a quarter inch marble through that, and then it rolls, you know, all the way through. And it really doesn't mm-hmm. matter which order we started connecting them, as long as we um you know, connect them all, right? Yeah, okay. We could connect the two middle ones and then the ones at the end, et cetera. Sure. So, okay. so functions that have that shape are monoids. 
which is kind of cool. So this is interesting because we were talking about lists and containers mostly in terms of being semi-groups and monoids. Right. But now we're talking about functions themselves. <laughs> well, certain kinds of functions, yes. Yeah. That's why I said this, this is a very broad concept, and it doesn't just have to apply to, to those things. This is, this is why it's useful for it to be such an incredibly vague, for lack of a better word, or abstract concept. Abstract. Yeah. Yeah. Because we only care about these two properties that are very general. Um, another place that we can look at this as uh, is take a, a, a data type like a, like a Boolean, for example, and let's look at it under a like a different lens, if that makes sense. In the sense of like, we looked at ints two different ways or numbers two different ways. We looked at them as additive and multiplicative. Okay. And that gave rise to two separate but completely valid monoids, mm -hmm. right? The um, addition and zero and multiplication in one. So we could do the same thing for Booleans. And, and Booleans is just an example of this kind of thing. It's not the only example of this kind of thing. Right. So if you have Booleans, you could use or as your um, or as your append operation and false as your identity value. Mm. And now you have what's generally referred to as the any monoid, which allows you to take basically a bunch of results and say, did any of these succeed? And you just mm -hmm. say, compose all these. And there's a you know function that just says, given a monoid, I know how to just smush all these together and give you a final result. Kind of that, mm -hmm. that automatic fold that we were talking about. Right. Um, we don't have to have a seed value. Um, you can do that. And so you can, you, but, but you could also do an or monoid here, right? In the same way that we have addition and multiplication for integers or for numbers. Still with you. I'm not following or. I was thinking you could do an any. Or, or do an any or the same thing. True and, and, and an and. Right. So any is the one I was describing initially where. Uh, yeah. And then know, I was thinking all. What's or? Uh, oh, I'm sorry. You, you're correct. Or I'm completely wrong. Any, any. Any and all. You're absolutely any and correct. All. Okay. Yes, any all, all is what I was thinking. All, and that would be true, and you'd be passing. You'd be uh, and. The identity would be true, and then the function would be and. Yes, exactly. The the binary, like the logical and. The, yeah, the, or the operator to combine. Yeah. So this allows us to, like, uh, again, um, a lot of the sort of the machinery of this is based on your language and what, it fa uh, what facilities it has. But often in many functional first languages, you can kind of lift up these concepts. Um, you can like lift a Boolean up into a specific monoid and then do these monoidal operations on it, even though it's under the hood, it's a bool, if that makes sense. But you can treat it as an any or an or. And so you get some of those operations or the, some of the, uh, some of the, um, increased functionality that we talked about earlier, where you can operate on it kind of a bit at a time, take a little, take a little bit of time or take pieces yes. at a time and. Okay. You get those and you get just the, the facilities of if you have other tools that work with monoids, they just automatically work with your thing. Mm. So they don't just work on bools generally, they work on bools under this lens from this perspective mm -hmm. of anding or uh, or oring, you know, the, the any or the all. All kind in of concept. or anying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. And then the last example I have that's um, kind of, I don't know, this is made feel more... Um, like the collection thing is a uh, diagram. So there's actually a library in Haskell that does this, but we can think about this broadly. We have a diagram made out that where you can kind of build up shapes, right? So you have like a square and a circle. And if all of those things are diagrams, if, if our, our unit here is diagram, so diagrams composed with diagrams produce a diagram, if that makes mm -hmm. sense. Like diagram is our A here. So if you have a square and a square and you can combine those in some way, through some sort of combining operation um, to make a new diagram, like maybe something that positions one above the other or next to it or puts a frame around it or, or something like that. You can take these diagram pieces and hook them together. And you can build up, if you look at the diagrams library and you can see videos about how this works, you can see examples of how um, you build up little parts of it and then you basically concat. They use Haskell, so it's mconcat. Uh, sorry, not mconcat. They, uh, append uh, monoid append they append all these together and they build up a big large diagram out of very small parts and elm actually uh has very much this similar concept they they don't speak it, of it in terms of monoids but they um if you look at some of the early examples of elm and their um 
like the Mario example that they do, um, where Mario's like running and jumping, and mm-hmm. and I think Evan's doing like little games. Yeah. He builds up little parts. I think he does it also with shapes as well. He builds up little parts, and he might rotate this one. He might change the color of this one. And at every level, he's sort of just adding parts to parts until you end up with the the big part, which is the whole diagram or the the whole game. Right. And it's just shapes building e- on each top little of tiny shape is a diagram, and the entire level is also just a diagram. Also, just a diagram, yeah. exactly. So you, you could think of like an entire scene <laughs> as a, a final reduction of a bunch of little monoidal elements that all get uh, scene, appended to each other. Scene is a is a game specific term meaning like the, well, the level or the the area in which you're playing, right? Sure. Or I mean, or just I, I was actually thinking just like an image. Just like a picture. Yeah, no, like I, a, I was just specifying for our audience. That's not yeah. game savvy. But if it's a game, it could be, yeah, it could be more of a scene kind of thing where every, um, kind of like every frame, you're taking all of your monoidal elements and reducing them. And that's that's the output. That's what you show on the screen. Mm-hmm. Is, the, is is you're basically just folding all your things together. All right. It's, I mean, I'm, I'm mostly understanding. I don't, I, I think I follow the diagram. Is it sounds again, if we're going to do another a real world example, like maybe like layers, if you're doing artwork and you have like different layers, you can kind of stack those layers on top of each other and then you get the final yeah, image. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Or it would be like a collection of brush strokes if you were doing uh, recreating artwork. Sure, of some or, kind. or it could be all these things at the same time. I, I don't think there's, those are exclusive to each other. Sure, or it could be both, yeah. Yeah, and you could have, okay. you know, uh, you could kind of think of an entire Illustrator or Photoshop document as a monoidal reduction. Um, but so when we say, uh, diagrams. I'm, I'm having a hard time understanding why this is important. Like a diagram just sounds like a, a, a type of. Is the diagram something that people would work with normally? Because I've never heard of one. Oh, it's, um, that, oh, it's an arbitrary, just imagey type thing at this point, right? Like the the mind map that we use to like plan our stuff out. Like that mm-hmm. is an example of a diagram. A okay, diagram kind of thing. It, it's not a specific type or anything. You're just saying. And, and I was pointing out that there is a library in Haskell called Diagrams that is an example of this kind of thing. That if you mm-hmm. want to go find a video, you can, or we'll link to it, um, that would show you sort of what this might look like in practice. Um, obviously, you have to be able to understand the Haskell that they're doing. <laughs> that, that might be intimidating. But I think at a distance, you could kind of um, see what they're doing and get a general big picture sense of, oh, I get how they're building it up out of small pieces. Hopefully that makes sense. It does. Yep. Awesome. Yeah, that's, this is actually pretty... Uh, so I feel like this is one of those tools in the toolkit that it is one of those tools I didn't know existed and so it's not that I can't think of a use for it it's like oh I can think of times that I can, that I can think of where if I had this tool available I might have used it in my actual work I, I, don't, I don't think you're going to tell me that oh yeah and by the way in C sharp monoids are totally sported no problem just start using them tomorrow well I mean they are you just have to make things that are appendable <laughs> and have an identity <laughs> okay I mean, you don't need you don't need something in your language that has the word monoid in order to think about the concept and use mm-hmm. it. And you can say this data type is a monoid. It respects the rules. It doesn't have to be enforceable by the compiler. Sure. And you and you actually have said like you've said a couple times that some of the stuff isn't enforceable by the compiler. Or you really are working without the compiler's help sometimes. Okay. Yeah. So it's as much a sort of. Uh, communication device between programmers as it is a well so it's part that and it's part a modeling technique when you think of it as a monoid you think of it as oh i can divide and conquer i can parallelize i can batch things together i can do all these two kind of operations that i know are safe mm-hmm. to do where maybe before you would never thought you could do that to a log file or a network request or a database something all right i give it a very understandable rating excellent we hope for many Many more as we go up the ladder of scariness. <laughs> was this the first rung of the ladder of scariness? This is the first rung. This oh, is... you put you put your foot on the ladder. Wait, wait why am I climbing the ladder of scariness? <laughs> because we have to get to monads, of course, <laughs> so that we can show that monads are actually um, monads are no more complex than this. In fact, I would argue that they're simpler than the concept we just talked about. All right, monads and functors await on the ladder of scariness. Yep. And we'll get to a few others, too, as well, along the way. But they're definitely not uh, any harder than what we just talked about today. All right. Well, say that now. (laughs) That's true. Um, Excellent. Sounds good. So if uh, you disagree or agree with Aaron's uh, summation of how difficult the concept this was, please let us know. Contact at LambdaCast.com or join the FP chat Slack community. 
We have our own channel now. We have a LambdaCast channel. And jump into the LambdaCast channel. Yep. And with that, I think we're done. Closing remarks. Thank you, everyone, for joining us. I'd like to thank um, the listeners, first of all. And actually, that's it. Thanks, guys. Um, I was going to pick up some C++ recently, but I think I'm too rust. <laughs> <laughs> See y'all next time. Or not. <laughs>